I didn't, we didn't plan this when we started the Ephesians series back in January, but it's Labor Day weekend, and I'm preaching on labor. Praise God for his providence. I love it. I'm so excited for this message. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, great is your faithfulness to care wonderfully for your children. You have been so kind to us to build this family in just a few short months. Continue to show us your faithfulness, especially today. Give us contentment this week in every task you set before us so that we have a heart that works unto the Lord. Amen. Well, the Pullman family this last week had a really bad case of the Mondays. On Monday morning, it was especially difficult for many of us to get started on our chores and the work we had to do. You guys know what I mean about Mondays, right? Everyone hates Monday. You have such a fantastic weekend full of rest and playfulness. You have a great time with your church family worshiping and fellowshipping. You go home and lay your head on your pillow at night in just great thankfulness for God's kindness to you. You fall fast asleep. And before you know it, your alarm rudely wakes you up and reminds you that you have work to do. And you think, this is the day that the Lord has made. I want to rejoice and be glad in it. And you give me work to do? Why would I waste this day with work? So we tend to respond to a bad case of the Mondays by telling ourselves, that we need to get this work done in order to get to the fun stuff. We tell ourselves, how can I pay for the fun things unless I, don't do my, unless I do my job and get paid for it? Or we tell the kids, no fun until your chores are done. So we make it seem like it's a necessary evil that we have to endure in order to get to what God really made us for. But I've come this week to realize that that attitude, that perspective, is rebellion against God's good design for us, his people. Created in the image of God, we were made to work, to creatively build, organize, and beautify this world so that life in Christ could flourish in it. And we'll see that truth today in our text from the example of someone who's not at the pinnacle of creative, free innovation, but from someone who has every right to complain about his circumstances. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. And follow along with me as I read. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it should be clear to us as we're reading through this that 
What's going on here is quite a foreign concept to our contemporary culture. In the previous couple of weeks, as we've preached about wives and husbands and children and parents, as you hear those words, you can probably imagine in your mind a circumstance in your own life that might require a change in attitude or obedience. But as we get to this, your minds might be left blank. Slavery and masters, that doesn't make any sense to me. In fact, you might even be getting defensive, wondering, wait a second, is Paul condoning slavery? So the only imagery that might be popping into your mind is the imagery of America's horrible history of slavery. And for many people, they check out after they see that one word. They, they can no longer listen to what Paul has to say because of that. But I do think there's incredibly important principles for every single one of us in this room And I'll get to those in a minute, but first I need to address that imagery so that you can receive the rest of these words with a proper idea in your mind of what Paul is speaking of. So that first word in in verse 5 literally is the word slave. Paul really is telling slaves to obey their masters with a really good attitude. But slavery is such a terrible stain on our history, that we hear that word and we immediately cringe and think, Paul must be nuts. And the emotions from our history as Americans are still quite fresh, as we've seen in demonstrations and protests around the country over the last few years. So that makes many people want to distance themselves from this text and that word in particular. Even my ESV translation doesn't translate that first word, slave, but as bond servant, to try to avoid that, that immediate gut reaction from most people. The translators say that they agree that the word most literally means slave. It means someone who is the property of someone else for labor. Yes, they say that. But they also don't want us to think that it's the exact same slavery that we saw in our country just 150 years ago. So, Let me address that image in your head first and try to reshape it so it's an appropriate image that can really inform our behavior today. A few important differences between what we know in American slavery and what Paul experienced in his time. This isn't just to justify slavery and say that, oh, it was okay then. It really wasn't an exciting thing then either. But it wasn't as repulsive to them, I think, as it is to us. Most importantly, the Roman system of slavery wasn't a race-based system where they would look at somebody, a group of people, and assume because of their skin color, because of their DNA, they are by nature inferior to the rest of us. And the rest of us are required to have dominion over them, to care for them as inferior people. That was the assumption in American slavery, but Roman slavery was quite different. It was more of a contract debt system where if you took out a loan from somebody to start a business, to pay off a house or whatever, and suddenly you couldn't pay it back anymore, you agreed to become a person's slave for a while, for a certain length of time, at which time your debt would be paid and you would be set free again. In fact, there's many reasons or many ways that you could be set free from being a slave, and actually be better off afterwards. 
Some people, their lives were so horrible, they were so poor that they couldn't afford to buy basic needs for their family. So they would sell themselves into slavery to guarantee food and shelter. Some masters even promised education. You could become a slave and get trained, get an education so you could become a tutor to their children. And then later when you're set free, now you're educated. Or you were trained in a, in a trade and now you can start your own business because of what you learned as a slave. Some masters were e- even had the ability of bringing someone, giving someone legal Roman citizenship. So you could bring a slave in and after you set them free, they get all the rights of a Roman citizen. That's not to say that slavery was a good life. Roman slaves were definitely treated like second-class citizens. They were mocked and beaten. Oftentimes they were promised freedom, and it was taken away just at the last second. But they still had this hope. They entered into slavery with the hope that their life one day was going to get better. That there was an opportunity for freedom somewhere out there. And that's what Paul is latching onto in this text. He's taking that imagery of hope and saying, Christ has already brought it for us. But that makes me wonder, why didn't Paul keep going? Why didn't he say, and to expand that great hope, now you get to have earthly freedom as well. Instead, he tells these people to keep this oppressive system in operation. Does Paul not believe in the equality of all people? Well, Paul had bigger concerns than simple social transformation. He's not interested in starting an uprising, a big protest. He has a message from God that's bigger than changing Roman culture. His message is to transform the entire world. But this transformation isn't going to come by transforming, changing the laws of society. It comes by changing individuals within that society. If Paul told people that you become a Christian, you get to be set free from all authority structures. Suddenly, you'd have problems everywhere. Slaves walking out on their contracts, on their debt contracts, and masters retaliating, trying to desperately hold on to their living by retaliating with excessive force. There'd be riots everywhere. Exactly the opposite of the quiet, submissive, peaceable life that the gospel calls us to. In fact, Paul embraces suffering as a means for entering into the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't promise us freedom in our presence from our present circumstances, but he gives us strength to endure them. Strength that shows that our hope is beyond this life, but still, even though our hope is beyond this life, it changes how we behave right now. He calls us to a life of contentment where instead of working to obtain happiness, we work because in Christ we've already obtained happiness. Ultimately, Paul doesn't condemn slavery because it is a wonderful metaphor of our relationship with Christ. At the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians, we saw that marriage is a metaphor for our relationship with Christ. We, the church, are His bride, and He is a loving husband who cares, sacrificially cares for us. And then the beginning of chapter 6, we saw that childhood as well is a metaphor 
for our relationship with God. In Christ, we become children of God and He takes care of us as a loving Father. And now we see as well that slavery is embraced because it's a metaphor for our relationship with Christ. When we're saved, we don't gain some libertarian freedom where we're suddenly the masters of our own existence. With His blood, He bought us to be His own. We now become slaves to Christ. But the difference is he is a wonderful master who loves, who delights in giving us everything we need to make our work joyful. Being a slave of Christ has all the benefits of the Roman slavery system and none of its disadvantages. He gives us a home and our daily bread. He gives us instruction and training within the family of God so we can use our skills and our gifts to bless other people. And best of all, becoming His slave gives us rights as legal citizens in the kingdom of heaven. This is incredible news that makes it even more glorious when we see it through the eyes of some of society's most oppressed people. So with that kind of imagery in mind, we can go to the text and see how Paul commands us to follow this same, to follow in obedience in the same way. The main thing I want you to take away from this message today is that Christ redeems us wherever we're at, right in whatever circumstances we are, so that we have a great opportunity to display our joyful submission to His benevolent Lordship. In our most ordinary, mundane circumstances of life, we have the great opportunity to glorify Christ in our simple work. So from the text, first we'll look at the attitude of a faithful worker and see who it is that's in authority over us and why our attitude can be that way. And then I want to conclude with a little bit of exploration into why or the task that we've been called to as slaves of Christ. This entire section is really about, mostly about our attitude as workers and as superiors, as bosses and leaders. But in verses 5 through 7, the attitude is particularly drawn out with a few key phrases. The first one you notice is with fear and trembling. That kind of plays in a little bit to the slavery imagery. But, and as you hear those words, you're probably imagining in your mind someone kind of cowering in a corner, shaking, trying to guard themselves against a whipping or some scolding. But really, that phrase, with fear and trembling, means something quite different. It's a phrase that Paul borrows from the Old Testament, and he uses a few times in the New Testament, and it speaks of just this amazing awe and wonder this holy reverence for God when he displays his power and authority. But then Paul takes this and he commends the Corinthians for how they received his fellow worker Titus with fear and trembling. Somehow, they recognized the authority of God at work when Titus showed up and they were amazed at God's power. In Philippians 2.12, Paul commands us to work out our, fear, our salvation with fear and trembling. We respect the authority that God has over our life. He saved us, pulled us out of our bondage, and now we are slaves of Christ, and now we, f- we tremble in fear and 
awe and wonder at our God who loves us that way so much that we diligently get to work to accomplish His will. This is the attitude that every one of us should have in our lives. It's an attitude, as we've seen over the last few verses, it's an attitude of submission. Now the next few phrases all fit together to clarify, to bring to life that imagery a little bit more. With a sincere heart. With a sincere heart literally means single-minded. What I say in my heart is exactly what I do. I'm not duplicitous. And Paul adds more language to that in verse 6. Not I service or not as people pleasers. He's saying, don't have this dual mindset, this attitude where I'm doing the work just because my boss is watching, just to make him happy, but inside I'm so bitter and frustrated. And if we're all honest, we can think of a job that we've had where we just did the work because our boss told us to. Because we knew it needed to get done, right? Or simply we wanted to get the paycheck. But deep in our hearts, we harbored such bitterness and frustration. But Paul concludes verses 6 and 7 saying, our hearts should match our actions. We should work with joy because we work for Christ. We are slaves to Christ. He bought us with His blood and that blood changed our hearts so that now it's our joy to work for Him and show our satisfaction in Him by giving that same attitude to whoever, whomever we work for. Verse 7 clarifies that. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. He changes our hearts so that whatever work we do, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Nothing that our work demands of us hasn't already been made possible by Christ and His Spirit alive in us. And then Paul tells masters to do the same. He's not telling masters, obey your slaves. That's not what he's saying. That somehow he's wiping out all distinctions between people. The command to do the same just refers back to the very previous statement. Do good. Do good work. Have a good will. Have a good attitude. Masters, leaders, bosses, supervisors, commanders, if you are in any position of authority, lead remembering that you too are a servant to Christ and lead in such a way that you reflect the way that Christ leads you. Christ's leadership is the key theme in all of these commands. Christ is ultimately the authority. And Paul reminds us that in every single one of these verses, every one of these five verses references Christ as our Lord, our Master. Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, bond servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, our reward comes from the Lord. Verse 9, their Master. Same word, Lord and yours. The Lord is the most common word in these sections because Paul is trying to grab a hold of this imagery and make it come to life by comparing earthly lords with our great heavenly Lord. By obeying earthly lords, slaves get the wonderful opportunity of showing how joyful, how wonderful it is to work for such a great heavenly Lord. And by being a kind and gentle earthly Lord, masters can show how kind and gentle 
our heavenly master is. Then we move to verses 8 and 9, where Paul provides motivation for this great attitude in our work. Slave owners in Rome were often known to, as I said before, offer freedom or citizenship, both together, as a reward for doing good work. And just at about the time when that good work was complete, the master would take it back. Oh, find some reason why you didn't complete the work as I said, so I'm taking it away. Or throughout the whole time, they would threaten, you watch out, you don't keep up the good work, I'm going to take away your freedom. And Paul encourages workers in verse 8 by saying, God will not go back on his promises. He will keep his promise and give you a great reward, whether you obtain your freedom here on earth or not. So keep working unto the Lord. But then he turns and addresses masters. Stop trying to motivate work with threats and empty promises. Verse 9 reminds them, in the grand scheme of things, their little authority over another human being is nothing compared to the great authority of Christ. If you have a scale of authority and Christ is at the top, that little authority down at the bottom basically puts you on the same level as your slave. That little authority that you have over another person will gain you no advantage on Judgment Day. Don't act like you have somehow achieved some greater level, some greater favor before God. Paul is declaring a radical equality in his time, even though he still does command submission to authorities. The fact that he's even addressing someone's slave is quite scandalous. Instead of going to the master and saying, hey, you think maybe you could give this idea to your, your slaves? He just addresses them directly as brothers and sisters. He sees them as equals, but encourages them to embrace their role in order to magnify the love of Christ right there where they're at. Now, before I get to the exciting conclusion... There's probably a question that one or two or maybe half of you have in your mind about your own job. Is Paul commanding me to stay in my job that I hate? If I really find my own job unfulfilling, I hate my boss. Do I have to stay there and suffer? And like the answer to so many answers to the Christian life, the answer is maybe. As we've seen, Paul isn't so much concerned about what you do as in who you are. Who you are in Christ. So before we can answer the question if it's right for you to seek a new job, a new position, you need to ask yourself if there's even idolatry in your heart to make that request. Is your heart truly content in Christ? Or are you putting too much value in your, for yourself, in your job? Is your identity, do you find your identity in what you do, not in what Christ has done for you? As believers in Christ, we delight in putting ourselves into situations where we are forced to say, Christ is my only hope. My, the reason I'm so happy now isn't because everything is going great around me, but because God has been good to me in Christ. Your job is not your identity. Christ is. 
And how can that identity in Christ shine the brightest? Well, Paul says, for some slaves, it meant to remain in the darkness. Remain in that darkness so that the love of Christ and the gospel could shine most brightly. But for others, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, he does say, if you are offered freedom, by all means, take it. Go for it. If you have the opportunity to rejoice in freedom given to you, that's also an opportunity to rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. What a great parallel that is, too. But you need to ask yourself instead, which circumstance in my life gives me the best opportunity to delight in Christ alone? A better job might do that, and it might not. God calls us to holy character no matter where we are. And as our hearts become more satisfied in him, then he will guide us to the right circumstances that will best glorify himself. Perhaps you're wondering, should I quit my job? Should I take a new job? You might have the opportunity to do that, but what's really holding you back isn't a clear call from God, but fear over what freedom means for you. Now I have to provide for my family in a different way. Is God going to answer my call? Is he going to take care of me? But you have a decision to make that even though you might be financially taking a risk, this change might allow you to have more freedom from your sin, more freedom in order to become the man or woman God's calling you to be. Or possibly God, you need to ask God just to change your heart, to make you more satisfied where you are so that your joy is in him, not in what you do. So having looked through the text a bit, I want to go back to the beginning we're talking about life in the mundane and magnify the value of our work by going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and seeing what we were called to do, what we were made to do as humans, as image bearers of God. How do we do such boring, painful, sometimes menial, mundane tasks in this way that God calls us to? Well, before sin entered the world in Genesis 1, God did this amazing work of creation. He made this beautiful world and filled it full of the raw materials for life to flourish. And right at the pinnacle of it all, He made people, image bearers, those who show the world what God is like. And in verse 28 of chapter 1, He says, fill the earth with more of yourself, more image bearers, and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's our task as image bearers. Together, we get to show off who God is in our work. We were called to be lords of the earth, masters of our lands, kings of the world. And in chapter 2, verse 15, this commission gets more clarity. Verse 15 says, Mankind was made to work and to keep the land. Could mean cultivate it. And guard it. Maintain it. Take the raw materials that God has given and use your own creativity to make it beautiful, to make life flourish in it so that the world would see that God makes life flourish. We were made to be kings and city makers and culture shapers. 
And this amazing, extraordinary task is accomplished through the ordinary work of our hands and our minds. But it all came crashing down in Genesis 3. Adam was given this great responsibility to be Lord of the entire earth. And he abdicated this responsibility. And God curses Adam in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, saying that now his work is going to be full of pain. He's going to be doing his work always reminded of his sin, of the brokenness of this world. Instead of being Lord over the earth, Adam became a slave. And since that day of Adam, we all continue our work in the pain as slaves. But this was not how it was meant to be. Work was supposed to be this joyful participation in God's work of bringing life. And we gave it all up in sin. But in Christ, He reverses the curse. The Lord of glory, the King of the universe, the Creator of heaven and earth, who stands in authority over all things, left it behind, voluntarily gave it up, and Himself became one of us, became a slave. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, Mark writes in his Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to be a slave and to give His life a ransom for many. He became a slave in order to free us from our slavery. He did our painful work and bore our curse of suffering in order to redeem our work so that once again we could participate with God in bringing life with our hands and our minds. So I leave you brothers and sisters thinking about what you guys have been called to. By doing our chores at home, we get a great opportunity to create a sanctuary of rest and peace so that we can welcome people into the rest and peace with God. By designing and building and maintaining transportation systems, we get to be part of connecting people and making it easier to bring the gospel to the whole world. By administering medical care in the middle of the night to a suffering patient, we get to bring the healing presence of God right into physical contact with someone. By photographing life, we get to highlight the beauty of God's unfolding story. By teaching and discipling children, we get to take moldable young minds and hearts and mature them into beautiful image bearers. By writing music and poetry, we get to help people express the diverse emotions of this life experience. It's not that we have to go to work. We get to go to work. We get to be part of creating, building, maintaining, and beautifying life for people all around us. This command in Ephesians 6 to slaves to work as unto the Lord shows us that even in our worst circumstances, God is at work using us to bring hope and redemption in Christ to the world through simple tasks. We delight into going into dark places to go to people 
and bring them up out of the shapeless and formless existence they live in and create an environment where they can finally see and savor our marvelous God. We get to give people a small taste of what the new creation life is. Living in the presence of God where image bearers like you fill the entire earth with creative, beautiful, joy-filled work. So I pray that God would bless you this week with work that is filled with that kind of hope. Let's pray. God, you have fashioned each one of us in a special way, in such a unique way to use the combination of our hands and feet, our minds and our hearts to build this world, to lift people up, to put people together and show them how amazing our God is, how beautiful our God is, how creative our God is. So I pray these people, my brothers and sisters, would glorify you this week in their work and that people would see their good work, their diligent work this week and marvel at how wonderful you are to love them so well and to work through them. Bless us, God, with such an attitude that Christ would be magnified in each one of us. Amen.